I'm Alicia, and this is Dead On. Dead On is a true crime podcast that covers upsetting and sensitive topics, including violent crime, assault, rape, abuse, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. This episode is dedicated to the inimitable Justin Ware. He's kind, he's charming, and he wanted to hear this case. This one's for you, mate. Today, we're headed to the state in which Justin and I were born and raised, good ol' Ohio, the Buckeye State. We're known for marching bands, soybeans, and Chrissy Hind, founding member and lead vocalist of The Pretenders. Since this is an Ohio-based episode, do us a favor and go listen to My City Was Gone by The Pretenders. Chrissy kinda shits all over Ohio in the song, but her criticisms are fair, and she has the voice of an angel, so she can sing whatever she damn well pleases. One last Ohio-adjacent fun fact that you might not give a toss about, but I'm going to share anyway. I have a tattoo of the state of Ohio on my left ankle, with a little heart over Cincinnati. I was going to get it covered up, but my mom told me she loved it, and now I love it again too. If you want to see it, let me know. I'll post it on the socials. Today, we're headed to Piketon, a small community located in south-central Ohio. It's so small, I actually hadn't heard of it before this case, which is surprising because it's only about an hour and a half drive from Cincinnati. Apparently, it has that cozy, small-town vibe. Before this case, residents felt safe leaving their doors unlocked and their windows open. Considering everybody knew everybody, nobody thought a crime so cold-blooded, so ruthless, so utterly brutal, would ever happen in their community. But sadly, it did, and it rocked the people of Piketon to their core. Introducing the Roden family. They'd lived in the area for generations. The Rodens were well-known and highly regarded as being hardworking and family-oriented. The patriarch of the family unit was 40-year-old Christopher Roden Sr. He lived in a mobile home at 4077 Union Hill Road. While Chris was a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, he was also an extremely talented carpenter. If you could dream it, he could build it. Head over to Big Bear Lake Family Resort in Lucasville to see some of Chris's work in action. According to the owner of the campground, Robin Waddell, Chris was one of the most gifted carpenters he'd worked with. Chris may have been a hardworking, manly type, but it sounds like he had a great big heart, too. Chris's cousin, 38-year-old Gary Roden, was living with him. 
Gary had been struggling with drug and alcohol issues for a few years. Never one to sit back and watch someone struggle. Chris asked Gary if he wanted to move into his place, so he could help Gary get back on his feet. Chris Sr.'s ex-wife was 37-year-old Dana Manley Roden. While Chris Sr. and Dana were divorced, they still had each other's backs and worked together to ensure their family had everything they needed. They got along so well that Dana lived just a short distance away, in a mobile home at 3122 Union Hill Road. Just like her ex-husband, Dana was renowned for being hardworking and supportive. She worked as a nurse in a local nursing home and rehab center. Apparently, Dana used to sneak treats in for the patients, just to put a smile on their faces. Chris and Dana had three children together. Clarence Frankie Roden, Hannah Mae Roden, and Chris Roden Jr. Their daughter, 19-year-old Hannah Mae, lived with Dana. Sounds like Hannah Mae had it all going on. She was set to graduate from Piketon High in 2016. She planned to follow in her mother's footsteps and become a nurse one day. All of that would have kept her busy enough. But being a mother on top of that would have kept her even busier. Hannah Mae had two daughters of her own, two-year-old Sophia and four-day-old Kylie Mae. Chris and Dana's youngest son, 16-year-old Christopher Roden Jr., lived in Dana's busy, happy household as well. Chris was a freshman at Piketon High School and had recently gotten his driver's license. Chris Jr. might have been on the shorter side, but he made up for it with a massive, gregarious personality. He loved going to demolition derbies with his brother, Frankie. Like his dad, Chris Jr. worked at Big Bear Lake during the summer months. Chris and Dana's eldest son, 20-year-old Clarence Frankie Roden, didn't live far from his parents. Frankie lived with his fiancée, 20-year-old Hannah Gilly, in a mobile home at 4091 Union Hill Road. The couple had welcomed their first child together, Ruger, just six months earlier and Frankie's three-year-old son, Brantley, regularly stayed with them. Just like his father, Frankie was great with his hands. He did maintenance work at Big Bear Lake Family Resort, and worked at McCoy Lumber as well. Also a bit of a blokey bloke, Frankie loved to hunt, fish, and attend demolition derbies with Chris Jr. Frankie's fiancée, Hannah, was a loving mother and homemaker. She had big dreams of going to college, getting a business degree, and starting her own daycare. Chris Sr.'s older brother, 44-year-old Kenneth Roden, lived just a short drive away on Left Folk Road. He lived with a pit terrier mix named Brownie, who he loved. Kenneth also had four children of his own, and had gotten divorced about 10 years prior. Just like his brother, Kenneth was a hard worker. He rose at 4 a.m. every day to head up to Columbus for work, about an hour and a half drive from Piketon. Clearly, much of the Roden family lived within spitting distance from one another, close enough that they could easily pop around to catch up, which is exactly how this devastating, brutal crime was discovered. Friday, April 22, 2016, started out like any other for 36-year-old Bobby Manley. Dana Manley Roden's younger sister. Shortly after 7 a.m., 
Bobby headed out the door to her brother-in-law's place. At the time, Bobby was unemployed, so Chris Roden Sr. helped her out by paying her to do odd jobs at his place. Every weekday, Bobby fed Chris's dogs and chickens to make a bit of extra cash. Like I said, Chris had a big heart and was always willing to help out. As soon as Bobby arrived at Chris's mobile home, she knew something was wrong. Chris's two pit bulls, who were normally inside the home, were sitting on the front porch. Then, when she tried to open the front door, she discovered it was locked. After finding the key, she made her way into the home and stepped into her worst nightmare. The front room was absolutely covered in blood. She saw drag marks on the floor heading back to the bedroom. Immediately, she started screaming Chris's name then ran back towards his bedroom. Upon entering the room, Bobby found Chris's cousin, Gary Roden, lying on his back. Not far from Gary was the body of Chris Roden Sr. Both men were deceased and absolutely covered in blood. Gary had been shot twice in the head and once in the face. It was clear that the killer had gotten very close to Gary before pulling the trigger. A muzzle stain indicated that the gun had been pressed right up against his head. Chris had been shot nine times, including in his torso, cheek, and forearm. The latter indicated that he'd likely raised his arm to protect himself. It was very clear that this murder was extremely personal, and, unfortunately, both men were awake when they were murdered. Bobby ran out of Chris's trailer, screaming and crying. At 7.49 a.m., Bobby called emergency services to report the murders. Ma'am? Yeah, what's his name? Chris Roden. and Gary Roden. Chris and Gary Roden? Both of them look like they're dead. You think they're both dead? I think they're both dead. It looks like someone has beat the fuck out of them. Okay. Is there anybody else in the house? Not that I know of. Okay. The door was locked when we got here, but I know where the key was at. And I went in and hit her laying on the floor. And wait. I'm done now. Okay. I'm standing outside right now. Okay. Just stay out of the house. Don't let anybody go in there, okay? Yeah. All right. We got deputies on the way, okay? All right. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Unfortunately, the nightmare was far from over. Bobby made a beeline to check on her nephew, Frankie Roden, and his fiancée, Hannah Gilly. Strangely, their front door was locked too. Bobby pounded on the front door, hoping someone would open it. Frankie's three-year-old son, Brentley, opened the door and let her inside. Bobby asked Brentley where his daddy was. He simply pointed towards the bedroom. When she entered the room, Bobby found yet another horrific scene. Frankie was lying in bed, on his back, and totally motionless. He had been shot three times. His fiancée, Hannah, was lying next to him, curled in the fetal position. She'd been shot five times, including once through her left eye. The couple's blood had pooled between them on the bed. And bang in the middle of that pool was their six-month-old son, Ruger. Based on Hannah's position, Bobby thought Hannah might have been feeding Ruger before she was killed. 
Despite being covered in his parents' blood, sweet little Ruger was thankfully still alive. Bobby was forced to lean over the body of her nephew to collect his infant son. Speaking to the Inquirer, Bobby said, quote, I was not leaving those babies in there. All I wanted was to get those babies out of there. Thank God they didn't take those babies, too. End quote. Bobby wrapped Ruger in a blanket, then put her own sweatshirt on Brentley, and brought both children outside to safety. Put yourself in Bobby's shoes. Imagine finding not one, but two violent crime scenes. If Governor Mike DeWine isn't covering that woman's therapy bills, I'm going to personally ask him to. No one should have to go through that. As news of the murder spread, members of the Roden family became panicked. If four people were already dead, who was next? Bobby's brother, James Manley, went over to their sister's place to check on her and her family. After all, Dana, Chris Jr., and Hannah Mae lived on Union Hill Road. And, of course, they were also members of the Roden family. James hoped against hope that his family members would still be alive. When James entered the trailer, he heard Hannah Mae's baby crying. Instinctively, he knew something was wrong, so he immediately called emergency services. Inside the home lay the bodies of Dana, Hannah Mae, and Chris Jr., all brutally murdered. Dana had been shot four times in the right side of her head, and a fifth time under her chin. Chris Jr. had been shot four times, including two times through the top of his head. And Hannah Mae was shot twice in the head as she laid in bed with her four-day-old daughter, Kylie Mae. Sadly, Hannah Mae's four-day-old infant was the only one left alive. Luckily, Hannah Mae's two-year-old daughter, Sophia, was with her father at the time. Still, the horror that racked the Roden family was not yet over. At 1.26 p.m. that day, Donald Stone went to check on his cousin, Kenneth Roden. When Donald entered the home, he found Kenneth's lifeless body inside his camper. Kenneth had been shot through his right eye. The final victim in Ohio's most grisly, callous mass murder. All told, eight members of the Roden family were brutally murdered in their own homes, sparing only the pets and very young children. But who would want this hard-working, salt-of-the-earth family dead? And why? In the wake of the murders, a few things became crystal clear. The killings were execution-style, mostly an ambush of the sleeping and easily incapacitated. The killings were clearly very personal, and conducted at close range, so close that the killer, or killers, would have likely been touching a few of the victims. And the killings had a very specific motive, but that motive was yet to be discovered. Pike County Sheriff Charles Reeder felt out of his depth by the depravity of the murders, so he called the Attorney General's office to request assistance. In 2016, Mike DeWine was the Attorney General of Ohio. He's the Governor of Ohio now. Mike DeWine contacted the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation, 
who sent an experienced team to assist the Pike County Sheriff's Office, including crime scene investigators, special investigators, criminal intelligence agents, and cybercrime investigators. The investigation kicked off immediately, quickly becoming the largest murder investigation in Ohio's history. The bodies of all eight members of the Rodham family were transported to the Hamilton County Coroner's Office in Cincinnati for post-mortem examination. If you'd like to read the redacted reports, you can find links in both the show notes and episode discovery file. All four homes were moved to a secure location at the Investigation Command Center in Waverly, Ohio. The Attorney General's office released a statement saying, quote, The decision to move the homes was made in order to preserve the crime scenes in the conditions in which they were found, in an effort to assist with the ongoing investigation, and anticipated prosecution of the persons responsible for the mass murders, end quote. In the days after the murders, media from all over descended on Piketon, trying to piece together the events of April 22, 2016. The people of Piketon were terrified, fearing that a deranged gunman was on the loose, that they could be next. Shortly after the murders, Jeff Ruby, one of Cincinnati's most well-known restaurateurs, offered a $25,000 reward for information. But not only that, Donations from the public started pouring in, hoping to help cover the enormous funeral costs that the surviving Roden family would face, and provide assistance for the surviving children. But all that goodwill came to an end just two days after the murders. On Sunday, April 24th, 2016, a press conference was held to address the progress with the investigation. Attorney General Mike DeWine said, quote, 18 pieces of evidence are now at the state crime lab, at BCI. Those are being looked at by our DNA people. This was a pre-planned execution of eight individuals. It was a sophisticated operation, and those who carried it out were trying to do everything they could to hinder the investigation and their prosecution, end quote. Attorney General DeWine also delivered news that sent the rumor mill into overdrive. Three cannabis grow operations were discovered on the Roden family properties. And not just for personal use. It was clear that this was a commercial operation, containing approximately 200 cannabis plants. So what does this mean? While many U.S. states have legalized cannabis, recreational use is still illegal in Ohio. Recently, some leniency has been written into the Ohio Revised Code, allowing for medicinal use of cannabis. According to the Ohio Revised Code, drugs are classified into five schedules. Schedule 1 drugs are classified as having the highest potential for abuse and no accepted medical uses. Cannabis, heroin, cocaine, and LSD are all Schedule 1. Schedule 5 drugs have the least potential for abuse and the most common medical uses. In Ohio, getting caught with less than 100 grams of cannabis is considered a minor misdemeanor, meaning you'll probably be issued a citation and it won't go on your criminal record. It's basically like a parking ticket. Obviously, the rodents had more than 100 grams on their property, but how much more? 
Under perfect conditions, a single cannabis plant can yield about 500 grams of the good stuff, meaning 200 plants could potentially yield up to 100 kilos of jazz cabbage, nearly enough devil's lettuce to keep Snoop Dogg happy. If you get caught with that much herb in Ohio, you'd better call the best lawyer money could buy. Unless, of course, you were growing for medicinal use. In June of 2016, Governor John Kasich signed Bill 523, which legalized medical use of cannabis. But the rodents' plants were discovered in April. So what does that mean? To be honest, I'm not sure. Outside of announcing the grow operations on the rodent property, Attorney General Mike DeWine didn't release much information about the rodents' plants. In fact, he didn't say that much about it at all. Were they earmarked for medicinal use? Or were they, shock horror, intended for recreational use? I don't know. But, for fuck's sake, Ohio, just legalize it and rake in that sweet tax dollar cash. And create another industry that employs a stack load of people. Unfortunately, DeWine's press conference disclosure had a negative impact on the public's perception of the Roden family, leading to wild speculation that the Rodens might have been killed in a cartel hit. But if that was the case, why leave the children and pets alive? That's a level of mercy that drug cartels aren't usually known for. It got worse than rumor and innuendo, though. Following the press conference, Jeff Ruby released a statement on Twitter, saying, quote, With recent complex criminal developments in the Pike County case, we are withdrawing our reward and involvement, end quote. But not only that, the donations that had been pouring in suddenly petered out. It was yet another devastating blow for the surviving Roden family members. If it wasn't a cartel hit, who killed the Roden family? Once investigators began digging into the family's background, they stumbled across their first big lead, and it surrounds Chris and Dana's daughter, 19-year-old Hannah May. When Hannah May was 13 years old, she began dating 17-year-old Edward Jake Wagner. Sounds like it was very serious between the couple from the word go, because Hannah May and Jake began planning to have a baby together about two years into the relationship. In November of 2013, Hannah Mae gave birth to a sweet baby girl. They named the little bub Sophia. Both the Rodens and the Wagners were over the moon to have a grandbaby. It brought both sides of the family together and solidified the bond between the Rodens and the Wagners. For a while, life was good. Hannah Mae was a dedicated mother to her little girl and Jake doted on sweet baby Sophia. The pair were so sure they'd found forever that they had matching wedding rings tattooed on their ring fingers. But these two were just kids themselves. We all change so much throughout our teenage years, a metamorphosis that extends well into adulthood. While Jake was planning on building a family together, Hannah Mae appeared to grow discontented with the relationship. For a while, the couple tried to make their rocky, tenuous relationship work, but eventually Hannah Mae had enough and broke things off with Jake in April of 2015. 
just one year before the murders. Jake was completely and utterly heartbroken. While he held out hope that they'd get back together, Hannah Mae moved on and began dating other people. In August of 2015, Hannah Mae fell pregnant with her second child, and Jake was not the father. Up to this point, Hannah Mae and Jake had been working together to raise their daughter, but feelings of anger and resentment began to fester. Jake felt that his grand plans for the future were snatched away from him. The woman he loved had moved on. The pair began to bicker over custody of Sophia. Eventually, that bickering turned to outright animosity, and it appears that Jake wasn't the only one who resented Hannah Mae. Apparently, the entire Wagner family got in on the grudge. Introducing the Wagners. There's Jake's father, George Billy Wagner III. Jake's mother, Angela Wagner. And Jake's older brother, George Wagner IV. As animosity between the Rodens and the Wagners grew, the Wagner family began trying to gain custody of Sophia, going so far as asking Hannah Mae to sign paperwork that relinquished custody of Sophia. No surprises here, this plan backfired. Badly. Hannah Mae went into mama bear mode, becoming increasingly protective of her daughter. Their relationship became so acrimonious that Hannah Mae refused to allow Jake or any of the Wagners to see Sophia. It's clear the tensions were mounting, but no one would have predicted what happened next. The Roden family was brutally murdered on Friday, April 22, 2016. Over the two and a half years that lapsed following the murder, investigators followed a trail of evidence that led straight to the Wagners' front door. Just when the people of Piketon thought this case would never be solved, on November 14, 2018, a press conference was held to share breaking news in the case. Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine said, quote, We promised that the day would come when arrests would be made in the Pike County Massacre. Today is that day. Yesterday, a Pike County grand jury indicted four individuals for aggravated murder with death penalty specifications, end quote. The attorney general elaborated that George, Billy Wagner III, Angela Wagner, George Wagner IV, and Edward, Jake Wagner, were all in custody. Pike County Sheriff Charles Reeder shared an impassioned speech. We have obsessively focused on solving this case. We've been patient when it was painful to be, running down every lead, no matter how small. But it all has brought us to this day. Today we have the answer. Members of one family conspired, planned, carried out, and then allegedly covered up their violent act to wipe out members of another family. They did this quickly, coldly, calmly, and very carefully, but not carefully enough. They left traces. They left a trail. The parts to build a silencer, the forged documents, the cameras, cell phones, 
All that they tampered with. And the lies. All the lies they told us. We knew the custody dispute was reaching fever pitch. But how did it lead to the murder of eight people? The tipping point likely occurred on December 15th, 2015, when Jake hacked into Hannah May's Facebook account. After digging around in her private messages, Jake found one that sent him over the edge. Hannah May told one of her friends that she would never relinquish custody of Sophia, that they'd have to kill her first. For the next four months, Jake prepared for the ultimate betrayal. He stocked up on ammunition. He bought materials to make silencers for a rifle and two handguns. He bought brass catchers, a device used to collect shell casings. He bought cell phone jammers which block or interfere with mobile phone signals. And he spent hours watching video surveillance, studying the Roden family's movements. At first, the entire Wagner family entered a plea of not guilty. Eventually, that would change. On April 22, 2021, five years to the day that the Roden family was found dead in their own homes, Jake Wagner faced court to deliver his plea. When the judge asked him, quote, What plea do you wish to enter to aggravated murder is charged in count one? End quote. Jake responded, quote, I am guilty, your honor. End quote. In total, Jake pled guilty to 23 criminal counts, including conspiracy, aggravated burglary, and tampering with evidence. Jake also addressed the court, telling the Roden family members who were present that he was deeply and very sorry. But these are just words. Can a single sentence, a minuscule sentiment tossed to the crowd, ever make up for the abject violence that he pled guilty to? And what spurned this change of heart? Behind the scenes, Jake had organized a plea agreement with special prosecutor Angela Canepa. In exchange for pleading guilty to aggravated murder, the specifications for the death penalty would be taken off the table. Instead, Jake would agree to serve eight life sentences without the possibility of parole. In addition to the guilty plea, not only was Jake required to admit to his role in the mass murder, but he will be required to testify against his parents and brother at their trials. While making this agreement with the prosecution, Jake provided a detailed account of what happened that fateful morning, admitting that he was personally responsible for five of the eight murders, and providing information that led to the discovery of additional evidence, evidence that the prosecution is holding close to the vest until the trials. Jake's public defender, Greg Myers, explained that Jake had gone into this plea agreement with eyes wide open. Greg Myers elaborated, quote, He knows he's going to die in prison without any judicial release, end quote. Billy Wagner, Angela Wagner, and George Wagner have all pled not guilty to their charges and have yet to see their day in court. I must stress that Billy, Angela and George are all innocent until proven guilty 
beyond a reasonable doubt, in a court of law. That being said, whoever pulled that trigger, whoever killed those eight people, whoever erroneously thought that they were sparing the lives of the infants and toddler found at the crime scenes, they've handed down a life sentence to each of the surviving children that absolutely no one on this planet deserves. These children will be forced to look at photos to remember their parents' faces. While the rest of us are free to build a lifetime of poignant memories with our loved ones, these children are much too young to remember. Like a carbon copy of a carbon copy, they will be left with second and third hand memories of the love they once shared with their parents. If there is even anyone left to remember. Jake is currently awaiting his sentencing hearing where he will learn his ultimate fate. The last time Jake will probably lay eyes on his parents and brother will be at their trials. I have no doubt that unbelievable, shocking evidence will come tumbling out at these trials. I'll keep you updated as the case continues to unfold. Rest in peace, Kenneth Roden, Gary Roden, Chris Roden Sr., Dana Roden, Frankie Roden, Hannah Gilly, Hannah May Roden, and Chris Roden Jr. May angels lead you in. If you want to go down a rabbit hole on this case, please listen to the Python Family Massacre podcast. It's an amazing production with insightful interviews and in-depth coverage of the case. Before I go, I need to thank the people who have supported Dead On from the word go. The kick-ass Patreon supporters. In the Dead Right tier, we have Justin Ware, Haley Hepburn, Brandy Lewis, and Daniel Vaughn. And in the Dead Set tier, we have Michelle Engsmeer. Thank you, you beautiful people. Okay, that's enough from me. Don't murder anyone over a custody dispute. Please just take them to court instead. And for fuck's sakes, stop committing crimes. Okay, bye. If you love Dead On, and I hope you do, please consider supporting me on Patreon. With your help, I can continue to create this arduous but rewarding labor of love. Dead On, a true crime podcast, is a small, independent production. From research to audio to marketing, I do it all myself, in-house. With your support, the Dead On community will be able to improve, grow, and become a force to be reckoned with. Plus, you'll get access to bonus episodes, exclusive content, and monthly live streams where you can ask me anything you damn well please. Keen to get on board? Find a link to my Patreon in the show notes. That being said, look after yourself first. If you don't have the extra cash, there's other ways you can support the show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite streaming service. You can also spread the word on social media. Catch me on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter with the handle at deadonpodcast. Or search for Dead On, a true crime podcast on YouTube. Special thanks to Fuzz Douglas, the talented musician who created the kick-ass theme music. You can find more of his tunes on SoundCloud. I'll drop a link in the show notes.
I'm Alicia, and this is Dead On.